And hello and welcome everybody to another edition of the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. Today on the show, a musical comedy about second chances gets its own second chance. It's called Lunch, a modern musical myth. And it is a story about a guy given one last opportunity to turn his life around and save his soul in the process. It was conceived in the early 1990s by the Emmy-winning television writer Rick Hawkins and the Grammy-nominated, or I should say multi-Grammy-nominated, songwriting team of Steve Dorff and John Bettis. Lunch had a five-city nationwide run and then sort of disappeared from view for a couple of decades. But now it is making a comeback with a newly revised version. The original creative team has gotten back together to update Lunch for our own times, complete with a new script and lots of new music. And due to a serendipitous set of circumstances, Lunch Reimagined, as they're now calling it, will be getting its premiere this week at Cabrillo Stage. Cabrillo Stage is the professional musical theater company in residence at Cabrillo College. Lunch opens this Friday, January 3rd, and plays through the 19th. And we're going to hear all about it from my guests today on the show, who I'm going to let introduce themselves. I'm Steve Dorff. I'm the composer of the musical Lunch. Hi, Robert. I'm Rick Hawkins, and I'm the author of the book. And you guys have long resumes. Uh, Steve, you aren't just the composer of this. You've written how many songs, roughly? Oh, I stopped <laughs> counting at about a thousand or Is that right, two. really? Yeah. And many of them have been recorded. Yes. And Rick, you have been a television writer. Correct. Practically all your adult life, I'm Yes, thinking. from out of college till now. Well, how did you two, you know, showbiz veterans uh, come to our neck of the woods then with this production of Lunch? Kind of a cosmic happening story. John Bettis, my lyricist, and I were uh, for the last several years thinking about giving a facelift to Lunch because we had been working on another show for the last eight years. So John, uh, John and I decided, you know, now's the time to do this. We had just finished our other project. And I called Rick and I said, what would you think about maybe going back and revisiting lunch? Um, long story short, he said, I've had the same thoughts. We all got on the same page and we started to reimagine songs, script, stories. But to really answer your question, at the same time, I got this call out of the blue from a friend, um, Ed Alton, who I know in Los Angeles, who's a composer, who said, uh, there's a guy named John Nordgren who's been looking for you for about 12 or 13 years. And I was up in Aptos, and we were talking over dinner, and he said, I wish I could find the guys who wrote this musical Lunch, which I saw in San Jose 18 years ago. John Nordgren is the artistic director yes. of Cabrillo Stage. And Ed Alton said, I know Steve. I see him all the time at Starbucks in Calabasas. We live near each other. He said, let me, let me ask him to call you. And that's how it happened. So I called John. He said, I've been looking everywhere to try to find you, and I want to do lunch. I saw it. It made a very big, inspiring impression on me, and we want to do this. I'm, I'm the creative artistic director at uh, Cabrillo stages, and I'd like to do this. And I said, well, we're right in the middle of writing it. We're not going to have it probably for about 
six or seven months. He said, well, can we put a deadline on that and I'll guarantee you a, a slot. That was how we ended up here. You referred to the previous life of this play. Um, Rick, you can tell us about that. I mean, it dates back to the 90s. Yes, in the, the early 90s. Uh, Stephen, John, and I started working on this project actually in the late 80s. and um, When the writer's strike hit. When the writer's strike hit. It's something that I had always wanted to do that Steve and John had wanted to do. So we got together and and uh, started working on this show. And you were a TV writer at the time, so you were sort of out of work for a while. I was on hiatus, <laughs> on um, political hiatus, as it were. And uh, and so we wrote this show, and then we um, submitted it to um, the National Association of Musical Theater. Um, every September, they have a workshop for mu- new musical works where you submit your work, and if they accept it, They perform, they do stage readings of your work at various venues in New York with New York actors. Mm. And uh, we were excited to be there, and our production won the contest. And as a result, we got a six-city run to tour the show in the summer of 94. So we have a play that had its first life um, toured. We did five cities, actually. We did Boston, Pittsburgh. Fort Worth, Sacramento, and San Jose. And then, you know, it went away for a while. Um, Yes. And then you said, Steve, you know, maybe 20 years later, you and John Bettis, the lyricist, were thinking about redoing it. I'll tell you why. We, we, again, the magic of this show, um, it's, it's kind of an off story, but it's true. We had done a concept album score album of this show. I had gone to my publishers and said, look, we have this show. It's going to be touring. Let's do an album um, and sell it in the theaters. And they gave us the money to produce it. And um, I went in with guest artists. We got Carol Burnett. We got Pamela Myers. We got Kim Carnes, B.J. Thomas, Davis Gaines. Uh, I called in a lot of favors. (laughs) And we made this fantastic album. Um, which sold about three copies. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, But there was a store in New York called Colony, which is in Times Square, which recently closed, sad to say, and uh, one of the great music stores of all time. And there was a guy in there named Bob and who had worked there for 800 years. A producer named Ken Waisman was in Colony buying a bunch of CDs because he was looking for something. And when he was checking out, he had about 15 CDs. And this guy, Bob, who knew Mr. Waisman, said, because he was a Broadway producer, said, oh, hey, Mr. Waisman, what are you doing with all these? He said, well, I'm looking for the next great musical lyric team to write my new musical, Josephine. And uh, he said, oh, he, he said, well, you're missing one. He says, let me get you one other thing. And he went and he grabbed a CD of lunch, which is probably the only store that had one. And he gave it to him. And he said, oh, I never heard of these guys. I never heard of this show. He said, he said listen to it. He took it home, and he and the book writer to Josephine listened to a song called Time Stand Still. And they said, that's the song, and those are the guys to write our show. It's the Josephine Baker story. I've heard about this. It's in the works. Yes. And um, so lunch was the reason John and I got that gig. 
Um, And then nine years later, as we were writing Josephine and really learning how to write musical theater, we would often say, God, if we had just knew what we knew when we had written lunch, you know, the songs are great, but they weren't theatrical enough in a lot of cases. They were just drop-in good songs, Mm. but then you had to pick up. We just were, when we first wrote lunch, we just, we hadn't done it before. We didn't know what we were doing. We were flying in the dark, just going on talent and... and, um, Instinct. Instinct. By the way, I want to jump in and ask just a procedural question. Um, You're talking about the book writer. This is the person who's writing... The dialogue. Yes. Um, Rick, is, Rick is our book writer. Is your book writer. But the, the concept began with you two as a songwriting team. Uh, is no, that the right? No, con- the concept for lunch, uh, it always starts with the story. Right. always starts with the story. But, but who's, wh- whose idea was that? Rick's. Oh, it was Rick's. So Rick's idea, but the book writer, just for people who don't know the lingo of musicals, mm-hmm. that's the person who writes the dialogue. Yes. Okay. The script. Who puts the script. Who structures the story of the, the story musical. and all of that. Yeah. And then what what uh, what generally happens, especially in 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 our case, is Rick would start writing scenes from from a uh, from an outline, and would suggest places for songs. And right. in some cases, he was dead on. Right. Most of the time, he would suggest titles, which we hated. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'm very good at that. <laughs> and um, but sometimes he came up with with the concept, which was just right. And then John and I would take those scenes individually and say, "Hey, let's let's write a great song for this character." With and we knew what the idea had to be, and so uh, and then we would deliver the song back to Rick, so he could massage the ramping in and the ramping out of the dialogue. Mm. Well, in asking my question, I interrupted your narrative, but we're talking about reviving this whole thing, redoing it, bringing all the knowledge that you and John and I assume Rick as well had gained over the years. Absolutely. And also updating it, you know, for contemporary times. And when we started, you know, uh, when we started the process, Rick had a fantastic ideas to how to do that, to bring it to 2014 and make it truly a, a show that's relevant for today. Um, the funny thing is that, you know, I, I thought, oh, this will be easy. We'll write five or six new songs. We've got some great songs. This will be a piece of cake. We'll write four or five new songs. We'll be done. <laughs> and uh, it turns out we've written... There are only five songs left from the original production, and I think 95% of the book is, is new. There there are approximately four pages of dialogue <laughs> from the original book, and, and all of the stories in, are pretty much different except for one. Ah, and we should back up and just um, give our listeners a sense of the premise and the structure of this. It, it is multiple intertwined stories. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I notice you guys have had to capture that dynamic in the songs as well. Mm-hmm. Rick, want to sum it up for us, the synopsis? I'll do my best. <laughs> um, this is Lunch. It's a modern musical myth. That's the subtitle. A modern musical myth. Okay. It is the story of Mackenzie Richards, who is a um, successful uh, Wall Street market maker, a specialist on Wall Street. Um, he does very well. And in the course of the musical, he learns to do good. Um, <laughs> our our uh, musical starts with um, an accident, which is Mackenzie's death. And when he arrives at the gates of eternity, he is surprised to learn that um, his fate is uh, not a good one. 
And because he's a supreme negotiator, he negotiates himself a second chance to redeem himself by working the lunch shift, which means that he has one hour to answer three prayers in three different locations in Manhattan. And so that's pretty much the premise of the story. He has to go back to Manhattan on a a hot dog cart and um, answer three prayers. One of them is in um, the IC unit of a hospital. One of them is on the uh, roof deck of One World Trade Center. One is in a fancy hotel. And... um, and we won't give any more away than no, that. No, we won't give any more the away l- than that. Lunch being the metaphor for giving people what they want uh-huh. and what they need. Uh-huh. Well, feeding, of, feeding, feeding them. One of the fascinating things for me um, in doing this uh, reimagined work was reading the show and seeing who we were in 1990 as a society and in updating it for our society today to see how very much we've changed. Was the protagonist, so-called, was he originally a Wall Street shark? No, he was a car salesman. (laughs) Post-meltdown change, huh? Post-Wall Street meltdown. Yes, correct. Rick, were you raised Catholic? No. No. You know, I read your uh, your script, and I just thought, hmm, I wonder if this guy has any Catholicism. Interesting question, isn't it? I, I, I am a very spiritual person, but I, I'm, I'm not Catholic. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, tell me about the inspiration for this story. This belongs to a category, I don't know if it has a name in, in story writing, but it's sort of second chance at the pearly gates kind of story. Um, yes. There's a, there's a long history of those in movies and plays. Mm-hmm. Yes, our, our version is... It wasn't such a wonderful life right, right, would be our right, version. Right, right. <laughs> Meets heaven can wait. Heaven can wait, yeah. And, right. Um, Carousel is a little bit of that, Sure. Right? Um, there's that movie. Did you ever see a movie called A Matter of Life and Death? Classic I love David this movie. Niven. Yeah. Um, also, um, what is that wonderful Meryl Streep movie? Oh, Defending Your Life. Defending Your Life. Oh. Albert Brooks. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant film. So you're familiar with that genre. What... Um, what steered you in that direction? As far as telling this story? Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think that be getting in touch with our spiritual selves is something that is vital to our survival today. Mm. What about death? I mean, death is, is a part of this uh, play, this musical. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mortality. Well, death is a part of everyone's life. You know, the um, Oglala Sioux are a tribe who believe in living life with death as your advisor. And they always believe that death is over your left shoulder. And no matter what you're dealing with, no matter how frustrated or impatient or angry or frightened you are, if you just look over your shoulder, it's not so bad when you look back. Have you tried that? All the time. Really? (laughs) Yeah, it works. Well, we've been talking about the music. And though we don't have a recording of the new version. We don't have a recording of the Cabrillo stage cast. We do have access to that old concept album, Steve, you were talking about. Right. With some pretty famous people on it. Which I believe you can get on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, I'm fact, just saying. Uh, you can, because I looked it up. And I happen to have some tracks off that album, which came out in 1994. Four. Uh, and this one is the title track, right? It's Lunch. Yes. The big opening number. Big opening number. Let's hear a little bit of that. Give me 60 minutes, I'll give you an hour I might even take your breath away 
I remove the limits on magic and power at this hour every day. There's a magic time of day nestled nicely just halfway when our appetites come out to play. Grocery clerk and head of state equally anticipate what the fates will place upon their plate. It's almost here. It's almost time for one slice of day at its prime. It's lunch. It's lunch. Everybody's eyes are on the clock. At lunch. At lunch. Nothing in the world is so important you can't stop. For a dog on the corner. That was a portion of a song called Lunch, which is the title song from the musical Lunch, uh, subtitled A Modern Musical Myth. The song was written by um, Steve Dorff, and the lyrics are by John Bettis. Both Steve Dorff and John Bettis collaborated on this musical with Rick Hawkins, uh, who wrote the book for the play. Uh, Rick Hawkins and Steve Dorff are my guests today on the 7th Avenue Project, and we're talking about a whole new production a reimagining of this musical, which dates back to the 1990s, but uh, is getting a new birth uh, at Cabrillo Stage in January, starting on the 3rd and running through the 19th. And I'll give out more details about how you can get tickets and find out about showtimes a little later in the show. Again, this is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. So, Steve, who do we hear on that song, Lunch. This is from the original concept album, by the way, that you guys produced when the play first came out in the 1990s. Yes, that was, that was Michael Rupert. He's a very talented artist who had done oh, a lot of shows. I want to say he was in Damn Yankees. He uh, originated Tata in uh, Ragtime. He was the right. wow. in Ragtime. Uh, wow. How to Succeed. He, j- he just did a lot of work. And, and um, in doing the concept album, I was trying to get stars of uh, of Broadway and popular music to uh, do one song or part of a song. And uh, we got Michael to do the role of Mackenzie for the album. Mm. The concept album is still around. It's available on Amazon. But people um, who attend this new production at Cabrillo Stage will see, obviously, different singers. But will that song sound much different, you think? Um, it's it's reimagined as re-imagined. well. It's, it's a more of a cast uh, song now. Right. Uh, the bustling city of New York and everybody being hungry for something at lunchtime. You know, um, I got a confession to make you guys. I don't eat lunch. Should I disqualify myself from this interview? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> 
Well, it's, uh, the opening line of the song is, what's the favorite time of day? So, <laughs> so it's clearly not yours. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I learned that I, it would slow me down, and that would be useless the rest of the day. So I started skipping it years ago. I'm stuck with that plan. But you guys being in show business, it's, it's more than just a meal, right? It's a place where you negotiate, make deals. True. Renew important acquaintances. True. Right. Things happen at lunch. <laughs> yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um as you say that the uh, the song we just heard, Lunch, will have more of a cast sort of performance. And I've read the script of the play, the new script, and I see that you guys are juggling logistically a lot of intertwining stories. You're jumping from story to story uh, as the main character darts around trying to solve people's problems, mm-hmm. right, to redeem himself. And um, the, the songs are like that, too. Um, a lot of intertwining voices. Yes. Um, challenging to put this together, I think. Very challenging to put together and and to uh, perform. We wanted to address the way people are used to receiving stories today. You go to the movies or you go anywhere and people are watching the movies and on their iPads or on their iPhones <laughs> and they're, they're multi-receiving. And we wanted a show that reflected that. Um, hopefully people will be so engaged that they won't be using their technical devices uh, while they're watching the show. But it's very much um, an iPad show. Mm. You know, you've got this story from here and this story from there, and they're all happening concurrently. Or or remote. Or remote. Yes. I was thinking, you know, it's cinematic too. It's like being able to cut from scene to scene. Very much so. And musically, the challenge was was not just writing a great three-and-a-half-minute song. It was about driving the story forward, and in a lot of cases, we felt like to musically do what Rick was doing with the story, if we could do that with the music as well. And and sometimes when Rick's staying in one story, all of a sudden we'll have someone singing from another story. and. And it made it very challenging, but very interesting, and it really makes it pay off. Because sometimes the two people are totally unrelated, singing the same lyric, and it means something very much the same to their individual stories. Mm -hmm. When you see that on stage, it is so unbelievably powerful. One of the things that the three of us wanted to try to create with this was a story where all of the characters seem separate, and by the end of the story, they're all connected. And Stephen John did such a beautiful job of doing this musically, so that by the time it happens at the end, the audience is willing to accept it. You know, you're reminding me of something. Um, I, I interviewed uh, Philip Glass a few years ago talking about movie scores, and he said an often unnoticed uh, function of a movie score is to unite uh, storylines that otherwise might seem fractured or discontinuous, like in the movie The Hours that he scored, which is a very complicated structure. Right. So the music is what binds things. Is that how you feel about it, Steve, as a guy who composes for film and TV? Very much so. Very much so. That's why they call it underscore. Uh-huh. You're, you're, we're, uh, I mean, try try watching Jaws without John Williams <laughs> underpinning music, um, it wouldn't be nearly as frightening. No, in I'm fact, sure. uh, you'd think someone was in a bathtub. <laughs> um, try watching a love story or a car chase. Um, so the the music, if it's done well, you feel it more than you hear it. Mm. 
One thing all these characters have in common, even though the stories are disparate, is that they're all in New York. They're all linked by this, you know, this city. You have a thing for New York? I love New York. Um, I, I just think it's, there's no place like it in the world. You're, I couldn't think of any place else to set this show but New York. Yeah, I think we had to, had to do New York. Mm-hmm. Which uh, ties you to just such a great history of storytelling as well, you know? Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your two backgrounds. Let's start with you, you Rick. Um, that original concept album of the music from Lunch included Carol Burnett. Yes. And I, I read your bio, your, you know, your showbiz bio. It seems to start with the Carol Burnett show. My first job in show business was writing on Carol's show. How did you land that? It was a, a happy, wonderful incident where I wrote a script and put it in the mail and sent it to them. Didn't have an agent, didn't have anybody and uh, knew nobody in show business. And uh, her husband, Joe Hamilton, who was the executive producer, called me at my home in Louisiana and said, come to work on Thursday. And I did. Wow. And that was really one of the hottest sketch shows of its era. Yes. It was... Oh, it was, it was like going to a master class and being paid. <laughs> and that was perform- performed before a live audience. Yes. Yeah? So, I mean, the stakes were pretty high too. I mean, of course, the if I remember right, uh, and I've been refreshing my memory <laughs> via YouTube, um, one of the things about that show is that the cast would crack up during the skits a lot, during the performances. You know, it was never a planned crack up. And they were they were so um, serious about doing the show, but um, they would plan things to trick one another. We would do two shows. We would do a dress show at 5 o'clock. And audience would come in. We would shoot the show at 5 o'clock. And then between 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock, when there would be a second show in particular, Tim Conway, and sometimes Harvey, would go to the director and say, for example, um, you know, in this scene where you're shooting me from the waist up, it might be a good idea to shoot a full body shot of me. And that's all he would tell him. And then Tim would bring this crazy stuff to do to try to crack up Carol and Harvey. So that was deliberate. Wow. Well, it added something, you know, for sure. Oh, for sure. It was so spontaneous. I can't imagine what it would be like to it must have been so fun to write for that show. It must have been unbelievable. It was just amazing. It, people often say to me, is Carol Burnett really as nice as she appears on television? And I always have to be honest with them and say, oh, absolutely not. She's nicer. <laughs> she is She is as nice as she is talented. And that's, that's a, a really nice person. Uh, so she was so gracious to um, come on board and, and be a part of the album when we were doing it. And uh, what sketches have your hand in them that people might remember or I might did, be able to look up? I did um, a, a, most of the movie takeoffs. Um, you might remember the Gone with the Wind takeoff. This was a, a sketch that I wrote. Um, we did commercial takeoffs. Also, um, the family sketches that were on the show with the Southern family. Um, you being from Louisiana. We transferred those to a series <laughs> later with Vicki Lawrence called uh, Mama's Family. Oh, wow. Wow. And then you went on to do all kinds of TV, uh, being executive producer, writer for just a, just an endless stream of sitcoms, it seems like. Yes. I, it did seem endless. <laughs> it, I, I had a really, really blessed career. I've worked with some of the most talented, wonderful people. And um, 
You know, most people like to hear all the horror stories of show business, and I really don't have you any. You don't have any? No, I, I worked for 24 consecutive seasons of television on various shows, and um, it was n- nothing but pure joy. What is it like, though, to have to produce material, uh, you know, all the time? Uh, and again, with a lot of people having high expectations. Is that, is that a lot of pressure? Well, you, you learn to, to write quickly and a lot. When you're executive producing a show, you're um, editing and doing post on the show that you shot last week. You're rewriting the show for next week, and you're rewriting the show that's happening this week that's in rehearsal. So you've got no fewer than three shows in the air at the same time that you're working on in, in any given week. Sounds crazy to me. I noticed that more recently, again, looking at your resume, you did something very interesting. You lived in Moscow. Yes. Adapting American sitcoms for Eastern European audiences. Yes. Married with children. Yes. Who's the boss? Who's the boss? I dream of Jeannie. Right. <laughs> you mean old sitcoms then? It was, it was a really smart business model that Sony Telecommunications had where they sent um, those of us who had worked in television over to live in Russia to try to understand the culture, to determine what made them laugh, what shows they would do. You know, before the fall of communism, there was one government-controlled television station in all of Russia. And now there are all these privatized stations, and they have no product. So we would go in and try to figure out which of the American shows would adapt best to the Russian culture. Then We'd adapt them in script-wise, recast them, and shoot them um, for Russian television. And Married with Children was a huge success for many years in uh, Russia. What was the name of the Al Bundy character? Um, <laughs> Gina Bukin. <laughs> was he Al Bundy with vodka, or what was it? Was it? <laughs> he was he was he was a shoe salesman. He had. Um, an oversexed wife, um, and it was very, very similar to the character in in the original version. Well, what things did you have to change, though, in general, to make them suitable for Russians? You know, just well, were there some general you know, rules of you thumb? F- you find things that are universal that people will laugh at. People always laugh at in-laws. People always laugh at um, family stuff. Russian people do not find bathroom humor funny at all. And you know, in Married with Children, he was always in the bathroom mm. for a period of time, mm. and mm. there was lots of bathroom humor. Scatological humor is not funny to the Russians. And all you have to do is go into a typical Russian bathroom to understand why. <laughs> but sex, sex translates? Oh, sex translates, of course. <laughs> um, Steve, I want to talk about your background, too. I've, I've looked you up, and um, honestly, the mind boggles at how many um, songs you've had recorded. We talked a bit about that a moment ago. And how many famous names have recorded them? I mean, uh, here, let me just pull out a little bit of a list because I couldn't begin to uh, memorize them. Um, you know, just a, a very, very short list, and it goes on and on. Barbara Streisand, Celine Dion, Whitney Houston, George Strait, Vanessa Williams, lots of country singers uh, in, in the group. Um, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, Glenn Campbell, Merle Haggard, Mel Tillis. Uh, lots of famous rock musicians, soul musicians, Gladys Knight, Jackie Wilson. Yeah. Um, <laughs> amazing. Um, how, first of all, do you get your songs in front of these people and how do they end up 
you know, getting recorded like by people like that. Boy, you know, it it's it really has been a blur. I know that's a cliche and <laughs> I think back to I've been writing songs my whole life. That's all I've ever done. And um you know, I you write them and you demo them up and you just kind of put them out there. I I started as a session player. I was playing piano on on sessions. Um, for other artists in and, LA, uh, no, uh, actually in Atlanta, hmm. uh, and invariably uh, at the end of a session, either the producer or the artist would say, "You know, I don't like th- this song we're doing. Is anybody got anybody got a song?" And I'd raise my hand and you know, anytime I could, and and play him a song, and and that was really the beginning. I I had a few songs cut that way. Um, I was in Chicago working on on a record as a piano player, and I pl- happened to play a song. Uh, well, actually, I did a piano overdub for a producer that was in the next studio. He heard me playing, and he came over and he said, "Hey, could you play something on uh, on my record?" And I said, "Sure." And I went in, and it was uh, the Shy Lights, uh, "Oh Girl," mm. and Eugene Record, who was the producer and the lead member of the Shy Lights. Uh, asked me about me and I, I played him a few songs and he said you know I'm doing an album with Jackie Wilson uh, I'm gonna cut both those songs with Jackie Wilson and I said really and uh, who's Jackie Wilson you know <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> um, but that that you know it happens all different ways uh, when I do these little songwriter shows that I sometimes do they're some somewhat of seminars and the stories behind these songs are and and the um, the fine line between absolute disaster and huge success is is just that it's a tightrope. Um, um, being at the right place at the right time, good fortune, good luck, and having a, a really good piece of material, you know, helps. Speaking of good luck, are there some that uh, continue to, you know, pay the bills today? Oh, most most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> you had good my, contracts. My biggest song um, is uh, probably through the years, Kenny Rogers, and uh, it just uh, went over five million performances at BMI radio performances, which is a huge, huge plateau. That that uh, uh, certainly, uh, I just fall in love again. Anne Murray is another big one. Um, Every Which Way But Loose. A lot of the stuff I did for Clint Eastwood um, lives on. Um, you know, I was looking through the list on your website, and uh, I noticed one theme that runs through a lot of them, a lot of love songs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of love songs. I mean, songs. that's true of a lot of pop music, but you especially, it seems to me. I mean, just to... Uh, give people a sense of, of the emotion in some of the songs. Um, I just grabbed a copy of one of them, uh, George Strait singing um, I Cross My Heart. Mm-hmm. Let's hear a little bit of that. I cross my heart and promise to give all I've got to give to make all your dreams come true. That was a segment from I Cross My Heart, sung by George Strait, and written by Steve Dorff, who's one of uh, my two 
guests today on the 7th Avenue Project, uh, Steve Dorff and Rick Hawkins, who themselves are two-thirds of the creative team behind Lunch, a musical that is being, um, I'd just say, reborn or rebirthed for the stage in um, Aptos this coming week at uh, Cabrillo Stage. It's called Lunch, a Modern Musical Myth, and I'm talking to Steve and Rick about it. So are you a sentimental guy, Steve? I don't know. What do you think, Rick? <laughs> I think I am. I, I know I'm a hopeless romantic, and uh, it it kind of what defines me and the music. Uh, I, I write. I always tell people I don't write with my hands. It it comes from the heart and um, and just comes out through the fingers onto, onto the piano. Do you have any estimate of how many hearts have been won um, by means of your songs? Uh, a lot. I, I um, you must get mail or I something. Cro- I, I do. I, I cross my heart's become a huge wedding song. A lot of people that. over the years have have said, "Oh, I got married to your song," and I said, "Well, so did I, but it didn't work out that great for me." Uh, you know, S- Steve, you should share the story about the person who came out of a coma because of your music. Yeah, that's true. I, I got a letter from uh, uh, a mom in in somewhere in Illinois, outside of Chicago. Uh, her son um, was in a car accident and was in a coma for almost two months. And his favorite show on television was Growing Pains. And I wrote the theme song to Growing Pains. And um, every day they would come into his hospital room and play the uh, play video cassettes of the episodes in the hopes that um, he would... Uh, wake from the coma and one day they put one in and the song started and he opened his eyes and uh, it was pretty pretty great to know that you know does this kind of thing go to your head um no i mean th- th- that was a very moving one it goes to your heart you yeah, know yeah, when something yeah. like that happens yeah no i'm just thinking the power of music and the power you wield over people when you write a song you know is amazing a funnier one is uh, I was at a uh, an event, a music event, and I just played, and uh, a woman came up to me, and uh, a, a waiter came by with a couple glasses of wine, and she said, "I just want to tell you, your your song through the years was meant so much to my mother." I said, "Oh," I said, I said "Great," and uh, the waiter. At that moment, there were two glasses of wine, so we each grabbed one. And I said, is your mother here? She said, no, um, she she passed away about a month and a half ago. And I came here because I knew you wrote that song, and I knew you were going to sing it, and I just wanted to let you know how important it was that we put the lyric to your song on her tombstone. And I said, well, let's drink. To mom, and we, uh, we, you know, I mean, that was a little bizarre, I must say. <laughs> I said, okay, see you later. <laughs> but, yeah, we, we get stuff like that all the time. Mm. Mm. That must have been a big tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of music, why don't we play another selection from, again, the original sort of concept album for lunch, and um, I'll just remind our listeners that the – Music and the story has evolved and um, changed with the times, and the new version is going to be at Cabrillo Stage running uh, January 3rd through 19th, and you can learn more at cabriostage.com. 
Um, so let's hear, as I say, another uh, track from the original concept album. Uh, this is called I Never Danced With You.
that was a song called I Never Danced With You from the musical Lunch. The composer of that song is with me today on the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, uh, and that composer is Steve Dorff. The lyricist John Bettis is not here, but uh, they have both collaborated uh, on a new production of Lunch that is going to be performed at Cabrillo Stage um, this coming January 3rd through the 19th with the book, as they say, written by Rick Hawkins, my other guest here on the 7th Avenue Project. Um, that was a character named Bonnie who was uh, singing to her father. I don't think that's giving too much away, right? Not at all. Right. Um, and that one, you know, that that's from 20 years ago, that recording. Um, it, it holds up, you know? I mean, if someone said uh, that was just written for a Broadway musical, I would have believed them. It's a pretty classic um, type song. Uh, it, it's a book song, what we call a book song, whereas it, it truly goes to what the story is in in the and it's an extension of 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 the dialogue of the book um and that was of course was laurie beachman whose vocal is timeless uh, laurie is no longer with us um but one of the great great singers um as i said uh, john bettis who's the third member of this creative team is not here but he is the lyricist so you steve and he have worked together a long time yes um, you've written your own songs with lyrics, yes. Uh, too. What's different about writing as a team? I've always wondered how that works. Uh, you know, every every song is its own little story. Um, writing with John uh, for the last twenty five years, really. Um, John's strength is first of all, he's he's a brilliant lyricist. Um, I never really consider myself a lyricist. I'm more of a composer. I know how to manipulate words and and write um, write songs about love songs and heartbreak songs. But what John does is uh, he's a poet, and there's a difference. John's lyrics tell stories and and our little movies, and and that's what you need to write great theater songs, I I believe. Now, a question I'm sure everybody asks you, and you're probably tired of it, is which comes first? Does the tune come first, and then the lyrics fill it in? Uh, it happens many different ways. Um, with with uh, the songs from lunch, um, sometimes John has a title, and he relies heavily on me to play him music, but sometimes the the title and the idea of the song inspires me to come up with a musical motif. Um, sometimes he'll write a complete lyric, and I'll just write to that. And sometimes I'll have a a tune that has no name to it, or and I'll I just love the tune, um, and I'll send it to him, and he he writes a lyric. I would say 90% of the time we are in the same room together, kind of doing it together. How about you, Rick? Do you get involved, too, with the music? Only to the extent that I will talk about in this particular story, maybe the song could come here. Mm -hmm. It could be about this. I would give them a terrible title, which I know would inspire them to write a great <laughs> song. Um, uh, in, in one particular instance, one of the songs that are in the show is a song that they wrote completely done and they weren't really sure how it fit or what it meant and the song was so beautiful I said it doesn't matter I will make <laughs> this make it work. work it made me cry the minute I heard it uh. um, something else that I do want to point out th this show has these beautiful classic emotional songs in it 
but it is a comedy too. Mm. Um, in in concept, it's it's like a postmodern vaudeville, where there are these two very very funny comic characters who sort of take you through all these different stories. And as you travel through the stories, you will be moved and you will be amused. Um, but like a um, traditional vaudeville, you'll get a taste of every emotion and and comedy being one of them mm-hmm. um, in in the first song that you played lunch one of the lyrics is something for everybody and pretty much our show does have that I think something for everybody I'm thinking the fact that th- this new version uh, is is premiering this is its debut right absolutely, absolutely. Um, at holiday time it feels like a holiday story it does feel appropriate doesn't it mm-hmm. you know and and to be doing it here at this theater that's like Everyone is so professional. It's like having the luxury of seeing the show go from the page to the stage in the most professional environment. The people of Aptos are so lucky to have this theater company there. Steve and I had seen a a show there before and knew the caliber of production that they did. um, And we're thrilled with what they're doing with the show. Yeah, the set design is remarkable. Um, The hot dog cart's cute. (laughs) <laughs> well, what do you guys imagine might happen to this play after it, uh, you know, debuts? And uh, well, our, our hope is that we move it forward. Um, people come see it. Good reviews. Good, good hype. We get a couple of other theaters to come in and see it, and want to move it into their theater, and eventually take it to Broadway. That would be something. It huh? would be wonderful. It it. This is a show that was always a bit ahead of its time, and it feels like now's the time. <laughs> uh, as you say, John Bettis is uh, is missing from this trio. He is the lyricist, um, but he too has a uh, an amazing resume, just like you two guys. Um, songs written uh, performed by uh, Michael Jackson, George Strait again, George Strait, Celine Dion again, Madonna, Diana Ross, Whitney Houston, The Carpenters. He's got an Academy Award nomination to his credit, a Golden Globe uh, nomination. By the way, between the three of you, there are a lot of Emmy, Grammy nominations yes. as well. So obviously three serious, uh, you know, accomplished veterans. Does this feel like a super regional experience to you coming out here to do this? Theater is theater, you yeah. know. I mean, obviously there's only one Broadway, but... Um, no, uh, to me, I just feel like we've been given this wonderful gift from this community to to be staging our work. Um, it all seems so serendipitous that I I'm not questioning any of it. I'm just <laughs> going along for the ride. This this show has a life of its own. I mean, I came I came up to see uh, a production of Oklahoma that they did because I wanted to hear the orchestra. I wanted I wanted to see the sets and the stage and the theater. And obviously, if, you know, if it was a Mickey Mouse situation, we probably would have had some, uh, a little bit of reticence to, to move forward. But I was so impressed with the production. I was so impressed with John Nordgren's musical direction, um, the sound of the orchestra, the sound of the theater, and the cast. The, the, the people they have in our cast are used in some of their other productions and they're wonderful they're they're very talented people that I wouldn't be surprised at all if they moved on to Los Angeles or or New York or London and and became very successful uh, stage artists there 
I've always thought the way in which New York sucks up the talent, though, from communities across the U.S. is kind of unfortunate. I like the fact that, you know, things can flourish in, in areas outside of New York. That well, art, art can still becomes grow. all about money, I, yeah. I believe. Yeah, I know. Between Hollywood and New York, uh, that's where everybody migrates. Um, these days, though, Rick, you're living in Pittsburgh, is that right? I am. You're teaching screenwriting. I'm teaching screenwriting. And how is that? Tell me about teaching screenwriting. Um, it's it's a wonderful experience. I sort of look at it as my giving back, you know, my community service work. Um, when I was in Moscow, working in Moscow, helping the Russians understand what is a sitcom, how do you turn a sugar factory into a soundstage, why do you need a live audience for comedy, you know, and, and how to adapt these shows, um, I'd never really thought about um, how much knowledge I had gained through all of the talented people that I had worked with. And um, this is an opportunity for me to, in a way, try to give back a little bit of what was so graciously given to me. And and it's amazing to be a part of that young, vibrant energy. And also working with a group of students who are really not familiar with anything that I've done on television, because most of it was before they were born. Their parents are all very impressed, you know, but the kids themselves, not so much, which is great. They just look at me as their, you know, professor. Uh-huh. Well, guys, it has been great talking to you. Um, anything else you'd like to say about the performance that, the, uh, that our listeners should know about? We're just very excited. Uh, we've seen some run-throughs and some rehearsals, and uh, it's just a terrific show, and um, everybody's doing such a great job at preparing and getting their parts right and singing the songs right. We, we hope people of this area, uh, this, the whole Santa Cruz region will go and support it and love it. And and we'll actually be at the performance on the 4th. They're having a reception, I think, before and a question and answer after so we could meet with people. Uh, one other name that we've left out is Andrew Siglio, who is the fine young director whose energy and understanding of this complicated show um, has brought it to life beautifully. And uh, we saw him actually as an actor in the production of Oklahoma that we saw here. Super, super talented guy. And, and I think we should mention his name, give him credit, because when people enjoy the show, he's definitely responsible for bringing it to life. Great. Well, I think I'll mention all the names uh, again. Uh, first of all, you two, Steve Dorf, composer. Thanks very much. Rick Hawkins, book writer, as they say in uh, the playwriting business, uh, musical business. And then uh, John Bettis, lyricist, who's not here, um, artistic director of Cabrillo Stage, John Norgren, and then the uh, director of this performance, Andrew Siglio. Um, and uh, as you just said, Rick, uh, there's going to be a kind of meet the authors uh, reception uh, on the second day of the performance. The run starts on January 3rd. On the second day, January 4th, there'll be a meet the authors event at uh, the Cessnon House on the Cabrillo College campus. The musical runs through the 19th, all at Crocker Theater at Cabrillo. Uh, I promised I'd point people to where they can get information, and uh, I'll do that right now. CabrilloStage.com. Or they can call the box office at 831-479-6154. 831-479-6154. That is Lunch, a Modern Musical Myth, uh, Reimagined. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you, you Robert. Robert. It was really fun. And again, the all-new version of Lunch, a Modern Musical Myth, opens at the Crocker Theater at Cabrillo College this coming Friday, January 3rd. 
and runs through January 19th. And uh, since we have a little time left in the show, why don't we finish off here with another selection from the concept album uh, that came out in 1994 when Lunch was originally released. We're going to hear Time Stands Still, sung by Davis Gaines. You've been listening to The 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly saying goodbye for 2013. We will be back in 2014. And we are online year in and year out at 7thAvenueProject.com. Time stands still When I see you smiling Time stands still Captured in your eyes Though I know We only have one lifetime I touch of eternity Whenever I'm in your arms And time stands still